for some 40 years now, and sometimes more than once on Easter Sunday, I've been trying to come up with an Easter message. But you know, it always sounds just about the same, and it never sounds like enough when I'm doing it or after I've done it, because it's, it's just not possible to say enough about Easter morning and what it means to us all. I also remember on one Easter that I went to one church for the first time as their pastor, they promised me a surprise for Easter morning. And when I woke up for the first time, I went into the sanctuary and I saw my first flowering cross. Now, it will not surprise you that every year I was at that church for some eight years, they always had a flowering cross. And they scoured the, the countryside and with God's blessing stole all the flowers they could that were blooming and bought whatever else they needed to make that cross come alive. And it will not also surprise you probably that when I left there, I went to a new church and I told them about what needed to happen on the first Sunday. We needed to have a flowering cross. And they said, a what? And I said, a flowering cross. And they said, well, which small cross would you like? I said, none of those. You need to build a big one. And they said, well, we don't have enough flowers. I said, they sell them at the store. It'll take, you have to get up really, really early to make that cross. I said, it's all right. I don't mind y'all getting up that early. <laughs> Find the flowers, put them on the cross. And for every year since there, I, fe I fear someday I'm going to retire and I'm going to go to some church on Easter at some point when they won't have the flowering cross, and that'll be a sad day for me. So you better, those gals who are putting it together every year and the guys who are helping, they're probably wishing, when are you retiring now? Because it's a lot of work, but isn't it beautiful? It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> when you start trying to think about what you're going to preach on Easter Sunday, you know you've got to do it, you've got to say it, and it's got to sound somewhat original. But it never does, because the story's the same, right? This Sunday, I'm going to be speaking about resurrection joy. Now, we're going to have to go back. And when I talk about a resurrection joy, I'm talking about what you feel about Easter. I'm not talking about what you think about Easter. I'm talking about what you feel. And I could just hang here for a while and just make you dwell upon your thoughts. When you come to church on Easter, what do you feel? Now, every Sunday is meant to be a mini Easter experience, but on Easter, once a year, it is, of course, brought into full bloom, and pun intended, and meant to show us completely what it means to have a resurrected Savior. But what do you feel? Not what do you just remember, but what do you feel? And so today, I want to talk about that for a moment. A lot of times, I think Easter for believers is kind of a rehearsal. It's kind of like when we come together once again to pinch ourselves and remind ourselves that it really happened a long time ago. They were the first people that went to that tomb and found it empty. They were the first disciples who had been following Jesus, thought he had died and had not resurrected, even though he had been telling them in so many words he was going to do it. On that day, it actually happened, and it happened over and over again over a period of some 50 days before the Holy Spirit came and made it all make sense. We rehearse it for believers because, you see, for us it's a reminder that death has been defeated. Now, here we are, 1,989 years later since Jesus was crucified and died, according to whose calendar you believe, and we're still doing it. 1,989 years later, people are still choosing to believe, despite what anyone else said, that Jesus truly was Resurrected from the dead and death was defeated. If you have been raised in this country, your culture, a lot of the writings and the readings you do in schools, 
unintended, of course. But what you hear and see often is about this story that encompasses our land and is the bedrock and the foundation, if you will, for who we are as American believers. A reminder that death has been defeated. A reminder that Jesus has saved us. Our sins are forgiven. Before that, they knew none of that. So when we try to feel what they feel, it's really impossible, isn't it? Because, you see, we've been rehearsing it and heard about it, and it's been going on for almost 2,000 years. We've heard about it over and over in classes and Sunday school experiences and other worship services. But for them, it had never happened. For them, death was real. When you died, you were gone. That was it. They had no concept of resurrection. So when Jesus told them on the third day he was going to rise again, they looked at him like, what? What do you mean? You're going away? Where are you going? How are you, how are you going to come back? They had all these questions. They couldn't even hear what he was saying. It's so difficult to believe. And before we get too hard on them, let's re realize that today, more than half of the world's people, quite a bit more than half, still do not believe. Nearly 2,000 years later. And they've been told, and they've read about it, and they've heard about it, many of them, many, many times. But some living in some countries have never really even been told about a man named Jesus who really did come back alive after death. It's hard for them to, to conceptualize. So when I started thinking about it one day this week, I, I just was dwelling on what I was going to say about this passage that everybody can basically tell the story by heart. And I just got fixated on a couple of lines in this text. I got fixated on the idea that here was Jesus looking like a gardener, looking enough like himself that you would know it was Jesus, but not so much like himself that you would recognize him right up, straight up as this was Jesus. Mary was there in that garden. She had already been inside the tomb and saw where the clothes, the linen cloths were, were folded and put neatly aside, and he wasn't there. She had already ran and told Peter and John, and they ran there. Of course, Peter looked and saw, and he, he just couldn't believe. Well, I wonder what they did with his body. Now, John, the scripture says, he looked in and he believed. Somehow, John had kind of gotten it. Maybe because he wrote the Gospel of John, I don't know. But I think not. I think John kind of got it. He was so close to Jesus, he had begun to already conceptualize its possibility. But there was Mary weeping in the garden. And the gardener asked her, why are you crying? Why are you crying? She told him, and then he called her name. And then she was so filled with joy, joy unspeakable, joy inexplainable, joy that was all-encompassing, that she fell at his feet, and she worshipped him, and she grabbed his legs to the point where he had to say, quit grabbing hold of me, woman. You know, she's probably fixed to trip him. But he said, I haven't even ascended into the Father. But she wanted to touch him. She needed to know that it was real and this was not a ghost. Now, if I were God, which I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but you're not. Whew, that's a close call. But if I were God, I would use Jesus like a jack-in-the-box. I would have that dude popping up everywhere. He would be popping up in people who couldn't believe it. And he would say, touch my hands. Touch my legs. But that's not the way God chose. He chose for us to be saved by faith through grace. In fact, he said, all these signs have been given to you 
that you might believe. He said, don't be unbelieving, but believe. And you have to do it without that evidence, and Jesus knew that would be hard. We wouldn't get to touch him. And when I tried to think of how we would ever compare our experience of believing to theirs, it just was too much for me. But I remember deciding how I would experience that, and I thought about the two most important people in my world who are both gone. Now, there are other very important people in my world, but they're still here with me. But the two most that stood out for me was my grandfather, Miller, I call Papa, and my dad, both in heaven. I remember how, when I was a young teenager, my grandfather passed away, and Papa was not there anymore. It happened suddenly. He died. I fell over at a heart attack, 84, just the way we all want to go when that time comes. Suddenly and quickly. If we can't go in our sleep, that's the way we want to go. You see, for me, a person who was used to speaking to Grandpa, who had been raised with Grandpa since I was that tall, who used to live just a short way down the road on the same side of the street, who ran down there almost every day to see him and spend time with him. When I came in, I heard that Grandpa was sick, and by the time I got to the house, they told me that he had died. I couldn't believe it. And for months and months after that, I often would think as a young teenager, what I would give to just be able to speak to Grandpa, just to speak to Papa and hear him call me the name he always called me. He called me Doogie, a Dutch-German man, thin as he could be, tobacco-chewing, knife-whittling, dog-petting farmer, one of the purest humans I ever knew. And he would just pet on me and spend time with me like I, he had all the time in the world. And I would yearn oftentimes and come to tears in the quiet of my own life away from anybody else, nobody else ever knowing, just wishing I could ask him a question, wishing I could hold that dried up hand again, wishing I could look into his eyes that I always had that twinkle in it. I knew he was alive and in heaven, but I couldn't talk to him. It wasn't the same. I remember when my dad passed away at the hospital. And I remember my dad was not a man of many words. But when he would come in, oftentimes he'd say the same kind of thing, especially at breakfast. If I, I'd come in while he was still at home before he'd gone to work, and he'd say, what are you doing, boy? Or if I was sick, he would show up at the house and say, how you feeling? A man, a few words. But a more straightforward man, a more simple man I've never met. What I would give to be able to talk to him. Now, wouldn't it be cool if, I used to talk to my grandpa so much when I was young out under the mimosa tree, a big flowering tree that flowered every year. And he would sit out in the shade of that mimosa tree and pet his dog and whittle on a stick and talk to me about, I don't know, everything in the world. And I had a million questions. And he always seemed to have time to listen. Wouldn't it be cool if I went home today? And when I went out in my backyard where I live in the back of that big oak tree, Papa was sitting out there in a chair whittling on a stick. He said, hi, Doogie. I thought you'd show up sooner or later. Wouldn't it be cool and what a difference it would make in my life if I could reach over there and touch his hand again? Because, you see, then I would, I would know it was him, and then I would have a flood of joy just to be in his presence again. I don't think I could find words to describe it. It would cheapen it. Or to come back and to see my father's eyes. And the way he would look at me. Maybe you've lost somebody that you would give anything for just to touch them and to talk to them again. To hear their words. 
But for me, that's as close as we can come to the disciples' experience that is still not the same. Because I know that's not going to happen until the day comes when I go to heaven. Not all that long off now. And then I'm going to see those twinkling eyes again. And then I'm going to feel them both in the resurrected body. And then the, all that relationship that has been built all those years is going to be so real again. For the first time in humanity, these poor, simple workers of the field, most of them are fishers of the sea, they saw something they could not explain. They touched the man who had died and was now alive again. And people say, how has Christianity ever survived? I'll tell you how. Because those people knew it was true. They knew it had happened. And it had never happened before. And it would never happen again until in death we met the resurrected Jesus. Until the day comes when Christ comes back to restore all humanity. And because their faith was so strong, their whole life was oriented around that experience of seeing the resurrected Jesus, talking to him, touching him. And then after the coming of the Holy Spirit, remembering all the things he taught them, they would never be the same. And they passed that on to the next generation. And the next generation passed it on to the next generation. And that feeling... That sense of biblical joy. Now, what I mean by biblical joy, biblical joy is not happiness. Happiness is too, way too little for the word joy in the Bible. Joy is about a state of mind. It's about a state of experience. It's about a state of soul that says everything's going to be all right. I'm in good hands. Regardless of what my circumstances in life are, regardless of how I feel or what may be going on around me, joy from Jesus is more real than all of that and supersedes all of that. It's greater than all of that. Nothing can threaten me or take away my joy. You can make me feel unhappy, but you can't take my joy because my joy is fixed, fixed in my relationship with Jesus. And you see, the cool thing about being a Christian is this is not about religion. There are a lot of world's religions. This is about a relationship. This is about praying and speaking to Jesus and hearing Jesus speak back to us. This is about reading the words in a book and knowing deep inside you at a place you can't explain that the words are more powerful than anything you might imagine. It's about the word coming alive because Jesus whispers in your ear. It's about a relationship as real as the one I have with my grandfather and my father, but even more so because it's not limited by death on this earth. It's constant. And it fills me with a joy and a confidence and a comfort and a sense of security that nothing else can, period. No fooling. The people that don't know that and try to make it into a religion or try to explain what it means to be a follower of Christ don't get it. It's not about what you think so much as it's about what you feel and what you know. Because you met a person who continues to change your life moment by moment and day by day. That's Christianity. That's what the world is hungering to see. People who are living that out, responding to their world out of the sense of an abundance of joy that comes from knowing they are never alone. 
they are always in the presence of God. And when I think about that and that story, it's as close as I can get to understand what it means when Jesus said, I want the joy that I have in you to be in you as well. And I want your joy to be made complete. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a completeness of joy that is bigger than our experience of life. It's a great secret of Christianity, really, that the promise of the kingdom of heaven is true. You say, well, you can't prove that. Sure, I can. You say, how do you prove that? Just cut me open and pull out my heart. And you'll see it engraved in there. Pull out the heart of any true believer in Christ. And they'll give you their heart. They'll give you their life. They'll give you what you need to give you the opportunity to believe. Because why not? The life on earth is not all there is. It's just a snapshot of what it's going to be. Now, I doubt that my grandfather is going to be in my backyard sitting out whittling under the tree. But if he is, I'll never be the same again for the what less of these years I have left on earth. But even more importantly, I'm never going to be the same that I used to be anyway. Because my Jesus is alive. And he talks to me all the time. When I read the scriptures and when I pray and when I hear people talk about how they intermingle their life with Jesus, how Jesus has touched them. When I see Becky Jackson, that God touched and brought back to life so many times and delivered her miraculously back to us. And now I see her in just a week or ten days' time being home. Being home has made her look healthy. Are you, are you, are you catching that? She said she saw herself in the mirror and she, she wondered who that woman was. Because the last time she looked in the mirror, she looked so close to death that she couldn't believe that now she's looked so close to life. In fact, her husband told her, he said, you look too good to have been sick all like that. They're not going to believe you. Coming home makes people whole. And home is where Jesus is. So if you're here today and you don't know that home, boy, it's so hard to believe and so easy to find if you're willing enough to just lay down and accept it. Just lay down your all your thinking and all your need to understand the scientific realities. Just lay it all down and say, I believe. I believe because people have been believing for nearly 2,000 years that it's changed their life. And the more you believe, the more it will change your life. I promise no April Fools, that's the truth. Do you believe it? Are you here today and you don't believe it? If so, you don't have to leave today not believing it. You're in the right place. We're going to share at the table in a few moments. We're going to gather around this table of the remembrance of Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. We're going to break bread and take from the juice, and we're going to remember how he poured out his life for us, how he gave himself for us. And all you have to do is just be willing to listen to that small voice of God that is the Holy Spirit whispering into your head, I died for you too. I love you so much. And I will give you more than the world can ever give you. I will give you joy. I will shower you with love. 
if you will just believe. Just believe.